We've been working our way through Matthew for some time now. And today we're going we're gonna to look at the fact, and may, maybe you already know this, but, but there, there's a cost that comes along with following Christ uh, that we're going to look at in Matthew chapter starting in verse 18. What, what do you think of when you think of the cost of following Christ? I, I've been kind of stewing on this throughout the week, and really when I think about the cost of following Christ, the first thing that comes to my mind, and may, maybe you're different than me, maybe you're similar, I don't know, but... But my mind immediately just goes to uh, Jesus' disciples and, and how they died. I, that, that's where my mind automatically goes, thinking about the cost of Christ. I don't know uh, if you've looked into how the disciples died, but it, it's kind of crazy. Uh, Peter and Paul were both martyred uh, around 66 AD. Paul was beheaded, and church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. And he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to die in the same manner as Jesus did. Uh, Andrew uh, went to a place called the Land of Man-Eaters, uh, which is now uh, current-day uh, Soviet Union, uh, that area. Uh, Christians there claim him as the first one to bring the gospel uh, to that part of the world. He also preached in Asia Minor, and modern-day Turkey, and Greece. Uh, and he was said uh, throughout history... probably uh, was in Syria, around Syria. Tradition has him preaching as far east as India. Um, there's a group of Christians in the area of India that revere him as their founder, so he would have been the first one um, to bring the gospel uh, to that part, uh, part of India. And they claim that he died there when he was pierced through uh, by spears of four different soldiers at the same time. Philip was said to have a powerful ministry in North Africa and then Asia Minor, uh, and he played a role in seeing the conversion of the wife of a Roman proconsul, and in retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and tortured to death. Matthew, the writer of the gospel that, that we've been studying, tax collector, uh, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. Some of the oldest reports in history say uh, that he wasn't martyred, but um, the majority say that he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. Bartholomew uh, had widespread missionary travels attributed to him by tradition. Uh, he was in India with Thomas, uh, Armenia, Ethiopia, southern Arabia, so a bit of a traveler. Uh, there are various accounts of how he met his death, but all of them were that he was martyred one way or another for the gospel. James, the son of Alphaeus, he's referred to as the lesser James. There's some confusion by how he died, but he is reckoned to have ministered in Syria. The Jewish historian Josephus reported that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. And stoned in the Bible means they throw rocks at you to try to kill you. So not a pleasant way to go. Simon the Zealot uh, had a ministry in Persia, and he was killed after refusing to make a sacrifice to a false god. Matthias, he's the apostle that was chosen to replace Judas. Tradition has him in Syria with Andrew, uh, and he was killed by being burned to death. John the disciple whom Jesus loved, according to John. 
he was exiled to an island and they tried to boil him to death in a vat of oil, which is a horrible way to die, but John didn't die, which was even even a worse way not to die, <laughs> to, to survive that. All of these men gave their life in service to the gospel. They were so affected by the words of Christ. They were so affected by the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ that they couldn't not go out into the world, according to Christ's final words, and proclaim the good news of the gospel, making disciples of all of the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Jesus had commanded. And it cost all of these men their life in order to do that. That's what I think of when I think about the cost of following Christ. Now, there's a bit of a disconnect because, because of where we live and the era, the time in which we live. Um, none of us probably have to worry about these kinds of threats in our life. Maybe in other parts of the world, um, but, but certainly today here in America, we probably don't have to worry about... Um, being stabbed with spears. We probably don't have to be worried about being burned at a stake or boiled in oil uh, or killed because we, we can't not proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm kind of thankful for that, that, that because we live in this time and in this place that, that that's not our fear. But I also see in the Bible that, that because of these things, like it, the persecution that Christians endured over time and over history has caused the gospel to go places that it might not have gone if there weren't such a great cost to following Christ, right? And today, Jesus is going to talk to us about the cost of following Christ. So what I want to try to do today is kind of take this idea of, you know, where most of us probably think about when we think about the cost of Christ and kind of bring it down to a street level or an everyday level that, that there is indeed for us here today uh, in America in 2022 that there is a real cost involved in following Christ. And so Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18, says that when Jesus saw a crowd around him, so remember he prior to this, had, had healed people, and so people were starting to pay attention to him. Word was getting out about what he was doing, and so this crowd was following him. So when he saw a crowd gathered around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So they were near a lake, um, and he gave orders to go over to the other side of the lake. And a scribe came up to him, and he said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have their holes, and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so we'll pause there for just a moment. So Jesus trying to get away from the crowds, which, which sometimes he did. And this scribe, a scribe of Jesus' day, was, was a pretty well-respected person. Scribe was, was a sort of a historian, um, presumably made a good living because it was a respectable uh, position in society. Uh, someone who had standing in the world, and people would look to the scribes um, to, to give them history, to give them uh, the Torah and whatnot. And so the scribe comes to Jesus, this respected person, and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus kind of gives them a glimpse, this respected person in society. Well, here's what it's going to look like for you to follow me wherever I go. He says, I don't, I don't even have anywhere to lay my head. 
Right? Jesus got around a lot, traveled a lot, and was not staying in four or five star accommodations uh, during his travels. And so this scribe who was somebody in the world, had some standing in the world, had the respect of people around him, I think what Jesus is doing here is saying, are you willing to walk away from all of that? Are you willing to walk away from this respected position that you have, the reverence that you have from people in the world? Are you willing to walk away from a good living if that's what it means to follow me? I don't think that this is prescriptive for everyone. I don't think everyone has to be poor to follow Jesus. I don't think that's the message of Christ. Right? Jesus confronted people in Scripture with this idea, but, but I don't think that's what He says to everybody. Right? We, we, just like we don't subscribe to prosperity theology, we don't subscribe to a poverty theology either. Right? We would subscribe to a theology that says well, whatever you have at the end of the day belongs to God, it's from Him. Right? Whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, right? it all comes from God, He's, he's your provider, and, and you're called to use it all in service to Him whether, again, you have a little or a lot, right? So, so again, I don't think that we're given a prescription here that we have to be poor uh, to be Christ followers. But he's confronting this scribe with his comforts in life. It's comfortable to be respected. It's comfortable to have a standing in the world and to be somebody. It's comfortable uh, to have your needs met in this life. It's comfortable uh, to not have to worry about, you know, what you're going to do to survive tomorrow. And Jesus, I think, is confronting this scribe uh, in that manner and telling him in this moment for this scribe to follow Christ, what if it means walking away from all of the creature comforts that you have in this world, would you still follow Christ? The Apostle Paul, I think, has a pretty interesting take on this in Philippians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there uh, if you don't want to, but Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this starting in the third verse. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the And then he gives his resume. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul, Paul had a standing in the world, maybe much like this scribe. Paul came from a good family, had a good resume. But here's what Paul says about his resume as he goes on. He says, but whatever gain I had, I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So all of that, Paul basically says, like, I was somebody in the world before I came to know Christ. <laughs> came from a good family, good background, educated, respected, even feared by many. And Paul says, whatever that was, whatever standing I had in the world, whatever gain I had, 
now that I'm a follower of Christ, it pales in comparison. Whatever good things I can have in this life, whatever standing I can have in this life, pales in comparison. And it pales so much that he says he counts it as rubbish. You might also interpret that as like the dung pile, so like the worst of the rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ, because Paul understands that righteousness is found not by having a good background, not by having standing in the world, not by being educated, not by growing up in the church. Righteousness comes simply from knowing Christ and nowhere else. And Paul says that's like there's nothing, nothing that compares to that. Absolutely nothing that compares to that. And Paul wants this so badly that he's even willing to say that I'll, I'll share in the sufferings of Christ. I'll share in the sufferings of my Savior who didn't have a place to lay his head. I'll share in the sufferings of my Savior who was tortured on a cross, one of the worst ways a person can die. He says, I'll share in that in order to gain this righteousness that can't be gained anywhere else. Becoming like him in his death so that I may possibly attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul realizes that he has a problem that he can't fix. Paul realizes that there's something that needs to be done for him that he can't do for himself, but he knows who can do it. Right? He knows where his righteousness comes from. He knows where his salvation comes from. And so as Jesus is talking to this scribe, he's challenging this scribe with his standing and his comfort in this world. And, and we don't really know what happens to the scribe. We're not told presumably the scribe may, maybe walked away. I, I don't know. We're, we're not told that in that he fell to his knees and said, what must I do to be saved? So, so we just don't know what happened uh, to this man. But then immediately another man comes to Jesus and says, another of the disciples in verse 21 said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, on the surface, this seems like a reasonable request. Let me go bury my father. That's a pretty important thing to do, especially in this time, in this culture. It was a very patriarchal type of a culture. And so, um, as a son, you had a responsibility to your family uh, that maybe we don't necessarily fully adhere to today. As a son, you, you would be the one to, to take over the father's business when the father passed away. Like, it, it was kind of a big deal, especially if you were the firstborn son. Now, there's a couple ways, and, and theologians are kind of divided on, on what this request is. So, so we don't fully know, but, but I think either way, we, the kind of the message is the same. And so one thing that this man could be asking is it's possible that his father had just died, and he, and he needs to go briefly and attend to, you know, in the moment, you know, the death of his father and the burial of his father, which, again, would seem like a reasonable request to do that. Or the other possibility is that his father hadn't died yet and he's wanting to delay his following of Christ until life gets to a point where from the family or the family business in order to follow Christ. That, that might seem to fit a little bit more with our text, but again, theologians are kind of divided on you know, what this request actually is. But, but if we have kind of the second one in view, he might be asking for months we don't know if the father's sick and on his way out, or if, it's, if the father's healthy, this could be years. 
This could be years. He might say, I have a more important obligation that I need to tend to, and once I tend to that more important obligation, then I'll follow you. That would seem to be maybe a little more worthy of a rebuke than, you know, let me go bury my father who just died, right? So again, we, we don't know fully what this man is asking, but Jesus' response, either way, whichever of those scenarios it might be, Jesus' response is, follow me. No, no qualifications. He doesn't say, well, when, when life settles down a bit, consider following me. Jesus simply responds by saying, follow me and leave the dead Leave the spiritually dead, right, to bury the physically dead, is Jesus' response. And so, again, no matter the scenario, maybe, maybe a bit of a harsh response from Jesus. But let me ask you this, what if, what if Jesus is who he says he is? Is that, is that a harsh response? No. Now, we read this knowing fully because we have our Bibles, we, we, we know who Jesus is. And in this moment when this was actually happening, the, these men, they, they were still trying to figure out who Jesus was. Right? Jesus was telling them who He was, showing them who He was, but they're, in a little bit of fairness, like they're still trying to figure out who this guy is uh, and, and what He's doing. But Jesus called to this disciple, and the fact that it says that another one of the disciples said, like th- this was someone who maybe Jesus was acquainted with. This wasn't necessarily a stranger. This was someone who, at least to some extent, had been following Jesus. To some extent was familiar with Jesus' ministry. Both of these men likely are to have witnessed the healings that are in the preceding sections that Pastor Brent talked about last week. And so Jesus simply says to this man, Follow me. Jesus unpacks this idea, I think, a little further in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. It says that great crowds had accompanied Jesus, and he turned to them and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's harsh. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Perhaps some of the harshest words of Jesus. These are definitive. Cannot. You cannot be my disciple unless you renounce all. All that you have. And again, we, we don't subscribe to a, to a poverty type of theology that says that, that you can't have any comforts in this world. We, we don't subscribe to that at all. But we do subscribe to a theology, again, that says everything you have belongs to God and should be used in service to the gospel, whatever that is. But Jesus calls out here, even 
He says that you must hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, and your brothers and your sisters, and yes, even your own life. These are hard words to wrestle with, especially coming from the God of love, right? The, the God who is love. What, what's this about? The God who is love. Jesus, who, what Craig pointed out earlier, said that, that the world will know who the disciples of Christ are by what? By the way that they love each other. That's the same person that here is saying that you must hate the closest people in the world to you. And not only them, but you must hate your own life. This might be a little bit of hyperbole in order to make a point, right? Some extreme language in order to make a point. And what Jesus is saying is that there's all these things in this world vying for your allegiance. And perhaps the thing that vies for your allegiance more than anything else are the people that are closest to you in this world. The people that you occupy the same space with. And what Jesus is telling us is that what it looks like to be a disciple is that, that you must have a greater allegiance to Him than anything else in the world. That you must be willing, like Paul, to look at your life and say, whatever gain I had over here, it, it goes in the dung pile in comparison with knowing Christ. And the reason that Paul laid out for us was, again, that righteousness, our righteousness, we, we can't, we're not righteous. We need a foreign righteousness that can only be found in one place, and Paul knew what that was. And so what does that mean when we think about the cost of following Christ? Because the same call that Jesus gave to this disciple that simply says, follow me, is the same call that Jesus has been over time in history putting out to the entire world. Follow me. Jesus is saying the same thing to you and me today. Follow me. I know you got a busy life. I know you got a job. I know you got kids. I know you got grandkids. I know that you've got things in your retirement. I know that you've got health issues. And uh, I know. Follow me. Follow me. I think of a few people that I know personally in, in my own life that have been willing to absorb the cost of following Christ. Again, you know, we're, we're not in a position because of the, the time and the place and where we live that, that following Christ is necessarily a death sentence. It, it's not that for us today. Yet we have people that have gone before us who have taken the call to follow Christ as a death sentence and said, okay. Hebrews 11, we, we call it the hall of fame of faith. We're told that there were some people in service to the gospel that shut the mouths of lions and, and, and set armies to flight and did these great things. But we're also told that some people in service to Christ, they were eaten by lions and sawn in two. And it says of that group of people, we don't even know their names, but it says of that group of people that the world is not even worthy of those people who were martyred for the cause of Christ. I don't know if any of, us, any of us in this room will ever be martyred for the cause of Christ. So short of that, what, what does it look like to, to absorb a cost of following Christ? And again, I have a handful of people that just immediately come to mind that, that I know in my own life. So our church supports uh, missionaries, uh, the Browns. Maybe you've heard their name come up. I, I got to actually meet them for the first time not long ago. And they're a couple that in their retirement years have picked up everything 
uh, and have moved to Thailand. And they work with orphans in Thailand, and they've adopted kids in Thailand. I don't know how many, eight or nine kids or something like that that they've adopted. And, and they have chosen to spend their retirement years leaving their family here in the United States, not, not getting to be as involved in the lives of their grandkids as they probably would like. They, they've chosen to spend the remainder of their years investing in people in a foreign country. And they're, they're seeing people come to Christ as a result of what they do. It's why we support them. That's a very real cost. That they have, they have counted that cost. And they've said it's worth it to do this. Another person I know, a lady named Kathy Vaughn. Kathy, uh, I've known her my whole life. She went to school with my parents. Like I, Literally my whole life I've known Kathy. And, and in her retirement years, uh, she decided to take her skills as a nurse to Uganda, Africa. And she works with orphans in Uganda and she works with women coming out of abusive type relationships and teaches them um, to farm and teaches them to have some kind of a skill so that they can support and sustain themselves. And Kathy, Kathy has five, five kids and all of her kids have three, four, five plus, like she's got a mess of grandkids and she's chosen to spend her prime grandma years not around her grandkids because her perspective is that I'll have all eternity. Her kids are, are believers, grandkids, mostly believers. And her perspective is that I've got all of eternity to spend with my family. But the time that we have on this earth, it's like it's short. And so I'm going to go over here and put these skills to work. Not all of you are called to necessarily pack up your life and hop on a plane and cross an ocean and do something like this. I know a couple of other people. We have a, uh, a missionary also that we support here uh, who's part of our Three Rivers Fellowship, Glenn Miller. And Glenn and his wife, Stacy, they're in their retirement years. And, and they live here. They, they haven't packed up and, and moved their life overseas, but, but Glenn travels a number of times a year to uh, Tanzania and Rwanda, Africa, and he trains pastors. Glenn's a retired pastor. And he travels, and, and they fund some of their travels out of their own pocket. They, they get support. We support them as a church, but, but they're out of their own pocket funding Glenn to go train pastors a handful of times a year. And it's hard. He's gone, you know, for a month at a time or something like that, extended periods of time. And, and they have decided, like, that's a cost for them. It's a cost for them for him to go and to be apart and to be away. It's also a literal cost because they're putting some of their own money into this, right, to make it happen. I, I think of another gentleman I know. Uh, some of you know Steve Bergsing. Steve, Steve was a part of our church for a number of years. He, he moved to a, a different area now. Steve's a disabled Vietnam veteran. He has every reason of anybody I know to just sit in a lounge chair with his feet up and not do anything and just have people take care of him. There's days that, that he can barely get out of bed. And every day that he does get out of bed, you know, we were like, like, is he going to fall? And is this going to be like a major thing in his life because he doesn't get around very well? And probably 15 or so years ago, he saw an ad in a magazine in a, in a publication about an orphanage of his service in Vietnam. He just has a heart for that part of the world. And he decided one day, I, I need to go there. And check it out. And he didn't call anybody. He just bought a plane ticket to Cambodia 
And he shows up at this orphanage one day, unannounced, nobody knows who he is, knocks on the door and they answer and he says, hi, my name's Steve, I'm here to help, what can I do? <laughs> they put him to work and, and he's been going there and spending his own money to go there. Lots of, he'd be embarrassed if I told you how much money he gives to Cam, but he's not a rich man at all. Not a rich man, he's on a disability income. And a good chunk of his income goes to support an orphanage in Cambodia. When I first met him, I came to the realization that I'm probably going to have to go there and retrieve his body one day because he's going to die over there. <laughs> what, what, what an incredible example some of these people are of, of counting the cost to follow Christ. I, I have a good friend who, who lives here locally. He works in higher education, and he's not a missionary. Um, you know, he's, a, he's a pastor in another town, but he's, he's not a missionary like, like some of these people are. Um, but he's a pastor that has a day job in higher education. And in higher education, he's being confronted with uh, ideologies that don't line up with the gospel. And he's had a long career in higher education. And we had a conversation the other day, a brief one, about like, is it coming time for him to think about doing something else because like there's going to come a point where there's a line drawn in the sand with some of these ideologies uh, that he's being confronted with in academia where he might say, you know, I, I can't, as a Christian, I can't do this. The cost for him could be career, right? Maybe some of you, like, like that's a little more street level, right? Like I said, not all, all of us are going to be missionaries and hop on planes, but this last one, it's a little more, you know, kind of street level that that maybe we can relate to. As we are in our families and in our workplaces and as society is just shifting more and more progressive and Judeo-Christian values are being left behind, there's going to be a very real cost that all of us may have to confront as, as ideologies and, and popular opinions shift, Right? And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of, of a hostile society, and maybe we don't live in a hostile society yet to Christianity, but I think we can all see that we're headed there. I think we can all see that we're headed there maybe rather quickly. In the midst of a hostile society, the call of Christ is still, follow me. It's still, follow me, no matter how hostile society is. And following Christ looks today pretty much like it looked back, like it hasn't changed what it looks like to be a Christian. Just because society has changed, Christianity has not, the Bible has not, the words of Christ has not changed. And, and there may come a time where renouncing maybe some or all of what we have in order to be a disciple of Christ could be a reality for us. And so I want to like prepare you now to consider and to think about what that might look like in your own life. Again, I think of the words of the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3, another part from what I read earlier. Paul would say in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained this, right? Like not that I've figured it out perfectly, not that I have it dialed. He says, I press on to make it my own. This renouncing of all I have to follow Christ. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind 
and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained. Brothers, or brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I often have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In other words, Paul is saying, Press on in your following of Christ, no matter how hard it gets, no matter what the cost is, because there's going to come a day where we, our citizenship in heaven will be fully realized. We, we don't fully realize our citizenship in heaven today. There's going to come a day when it's fully realized. And on that day, we're told that, that there's not going to be tears, there's not going to be mourning, there's not going to be sadness. All the wrong things that are behind us will be made right one day. Remember that and let that be your motivation to follow Christ. The missionary Jim Elliot is famous for his quote that says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. We fight so hard to hang on to our comforts of this world and our standing in the world, but, but one day it's, it's going to be gone and it's not going to matter. It's going to be nothing. And so Jim Elliot reminds us that we're, we gain something in Christ that we can never lose, and that's the better thing. And so as we consider the call of Christ to follow Him, and we consider the cost of following Him, when we're looking into eternity, it pencils, right? If we're not looking into eternity, it doesn't pencil. But when we're looking into eternity, it more, it more than pencils because we're gaining something that we cannot lose. And so consider today the call to follow Christ. Consider today the cost of following Christ. But not only the cost, but I, I would, the benefit of following Christ as we look into eternity. Father, we're thankful this morning that you love us. We're thankful that you care for us. We're thankful that even though you're, you're holding the entire universe together, the Bible tells us, that you are at the same time mindful uh, of us. And so I would pray this morning that you would help us as we consider the cost of following Christ, uh, that you would help us to have a realistic picture of what that is, that you would uh, give us a supernatural willingness to pay whatever the cost is for the surpassing greatness of knowing you that the Apostle Paul reminds us about. God, help us to have a right perspective of the temporal and the eternal. Help us to have a right perspective of our need for you and what you've done for us, and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.